the title of this evening's talk is Just As It Is. After six years of engaging in extreme aesthetic practices and finding, in fact, that they weren't bringing the liberation of heart and mind that he was seeking, it said that the bodhisattva asked himself, could there be another path to enlightenment? In reflection with this inner questioning, an image, the memory of a particular experience from his childhood appeared to Siddhartha Gautama. He remembered a particular spring day when he was a boy of six. That morning, his father had taken him to the spring plowing festival, a time each year when the men in the community, rich and poor alike, came together for a day of plowing up the earth, an annual ritual marking the beginning of the spring planting season. Young Siddhartha, seated comfortably and quietly under a sweet-smelling rose apple tree, observing the scene unfolding before him with the very open, alert, and unfettered attention that children sometimes give to things. Nothing really on his mind. In those moments of not wanting or fearing anything. He was aware of the earth breaking open in even wave-like furrows, noticing the heat shimmering up off the freshly opened soil. He was aware of the shining on the sweating faces and straining bodies of the men and the oxen. And he noticed the flash and the sparkling of the sunlight coming off the bronze harnesses and the dark horns of the oxen. He felt the plodding rhythm of the oxen's hooves and cowbells, rolling on and on and on, amidst the strong, sharp shouts of the men as they were working. He also clearly heard the beautiful sound of birdsong, as well as the shrill cries of the birds as they dove and pecked and devoured the swarming insects and the grubs, worms, and broken bodies of the mice left out on the upturned soil. All of this laboring, devouring, struggling, dying, endlessly going on and beneath and along with the gaiety, joy, and the beauty of that spring festival day. All of this entered into young Siddhartha's heart and mind as he sat alone under the tree, deeply experiencing and intuitively reflecting on the scene before him. And in his heart, 
finding no resistance, no tension, no inner conflict, nothing to add, nothing to take away, no picking, no choosing. As he silently sat, quite still and secluded from sensual pleasures, secluded from unwholesome states, taking this all in without prejudice or attachment, he experienced a sweet pleasure, a happiness that wasn't born out of desire or clinging to anything. And his, in his young mind, a deep intuitive understanding was seated. As a young man, in remembering this experience, the thought occurred, could this be the path to enlightenment? And it's said that following on the memory of this joyful and insightful experience from his childhood, the bodhisattva became filled with energy and assurance that this, in fact, was the path to liberation. And he resolved to sit quietly and press forward in deep meditation until he reached full understanding, true freedom. This was a turning point for the Buddha to be in his quest for enlightenment, a change in his relationship to suffering and his evaluation of pleasure. At that most important point of turning in his quest for liberation, Siddhartha realized that the confusion, the misunderstanding, the delusion, the greed, anguish, and hatred, all the dark and afflictive states of mind wouldn't be, couldn't be banished, released, let go of, or relinquished by creating extreme hardships for oneself and putting up with or living through these extreme self-inflicted hardships, toughing it out, or by trying to lose one's self in them. Potentially, a certain kind of strength might be gained, but the light at the end of the tunnel, so to say, would never be seen or felt with this way. Siddhartha realized that pleasure was no longer to be feared and banished through the practice of extreme austerities, that this would never bring a sustaining sense of well-being. He understood that when Pleasure is born internally with a mind, a heart that's secluded, free from the mental and bodily hindrances of lethargy, restlessness, greed, and clinging, free from the various permutations of aversion, confusion, or doubt. He understood that when pleasure is born 
of seclusion and detachment that it's not only okay, but that it's a valuable and necessary accompaniment along the path of awakening. And that it in fact points to the sustaining happiness of a heart, a mind, that is no longer run by these energies of greed, clinging, fear, and confusion. As a child, this natural state of an undisturbed mind is something that Siddhartha wandered into, so to say. The world outside going on just as it is. Thoughts and feelings arising and changing, coming and going. No different in those moments than anything else in the world. Nothing to agree with. Nothing to argue with. Nothing to cling to. Nothing to pick and choose, outside or inside. And yet this natural state of an undisturbed mind isn't so easy to wander into for most of us. We so often have a mind that's made up, made up about how it's supposed to be or isn't supposed to be, what's good or what's bad, what we must have or must not have in order to, a mind made up about what we definitely know is true or isn't true. A mind made up. A mind that clings to what it's made up. Prevents us from directly, clearly, and honestly meeting the moment we're in keeping us in conflict, keeping us from the possibility of wandering into the natural state of an undisturbed mind. This, in essence, is the cause of our anguish and confusion. This, in essence, is the cause of dukkha. There's an early Buddhist teaching, a long poem by Sangan, that speaks of this with wisdom and clarity. So I'd like to share just a few stanzas of it with you. The great way is not difficult if you just don't pick and choose. When love and hate are both absent, everything becomes clear and undisguised. Make the smallest distinction, however, and heaven and earth are set infinitely apart. If you wish to see the truth, then hold no opinions for or against anything. To set up what you like against what you dislike is the dis-ease of the mind. The way is perfect like vast space, where nothing is lacking and nothing is in excess. Indeed, it is due to our choosing to accept 
or reject that we do not see the true nature of things. When the mind exists undisturbed in the way, nothing can offend. And when a thing can no longer offend, it ceases to exist in the old way. When no discriminating thoughts arise, the old mind ceases to exist. Just let things be their own way, and there will be neither coming nor going. Obey the nature of things, your own nature, and you will walk freely and undisturbed. The great way is not difficult if you just don't pick and choose. So these preferences of ours, our constant picking and choosing, most of us being quite attached to our preferences, our choices, and carrying a deep-seated underlying hope that if we try hard enough, think the right way, prefer the right thing, choose intelligently, that things, people, particular situations, that life will do what we want it to do or not do what we don't want it to do. That with certain conditions being in particular ways that are, of course, our preferences, that we'll be happy. Along with this hope that borders on a belief for many people, there's also a deep-seated underlying fear, the other side of which is actually wisdom, that life just does what it does, that essentially it's unmanageable, ungovernable, that essentially we have no control over how it is. When in our practice we begin to look into and begin to see our preferences and the activity in the mind of picking and choosing, to look into the conditioned mind, the with mind, as someone called it, the mind with conditions. Seeing this phenomena occurring without getting seduced into the content. When we touch this, we're actually seeing into the cause of anguish and confusion, the cause of suffering. When in our practice we begin to see into, look into, and see the underlying fear of things essentially being unmanageable, out of our control. Again, without getting seduced into the content of whatever the stories or considerations may be surrounding the fear, we're actually potentially taking a step in the direction of wisdom, stepping into the territory of truth, the territory of just how it is, 
stepping into the territory of truth, asks us to let go of our cherished, hopeful map, the without mind, to be without these sought-after conditions for a moment. A mind for a moment without conditions, willing to simply be with, look into, and see whatever it is, just as it is. I found it to be both amazing and totally ordinary in the ways that these illuminations can present themselves through our formal practice and in our life as our practice outside of retreat settings. We're sitting 45 minutes, an hour, calm, tranquility, a degree of stillness and sweetness developing and being known. The thought coming through, oh, this is good. I'll just stay here for another hour or more. Then strong bodily pain. Sensations in the legs start up. Maybe we continue to hold tightly onto our agenda, our hope, our preference to sit another hour and get through the pain, put up with it, tough it out, find a way to get rid of it, or try to ignore it, or pretend it's not there so that we can meet our preference, our goal. This relationship to pain makes it a thing, something solid, substantial, a concept, and something to control so we can continue with what we've chosen to do. The thing we think will lead to our awakening sitting for another hour. Or maybe we relate to the pain via the without mind, a mind not made up, without preferences, without picking and choosing anything, without the concept of pain. There might be the open-hearted receptivity to see What is this thing I want to get away from or that I want to get away from me? We might notice that when our leg moves even just a tiny bit, the discomfort disappears. And there's a sudden recognition of the insubstantiality of the seeming solidity of pain rather than the habitual thought, oh, thank God that's gone. we might simply, directly, and intimately connect with what is. Seeing all the varying sensations occurring in our legs and notice them changing and moving, recognizing that this sit right now is a meditation 
with changing sensations. Nothing solid, nothing static, no preference, no picking and choosing in those moments, no time frame, just being with, seeing and knowing experience just as it is. This relationship to experience, to any phenomena that arises in our body-mind continuum, the without mind, the without mind relationship to things, just the right ground for wisdom to sprout up and blossom. When love and hate are both absent, everything becomes clear and undisguised. Make the smallest distinction, however, and heaven and earth are set infinitely apart. If you wish to see the truth, then hold no opinions for or against anything. In our practice, in our life as our practice, Recognizing the mind that's made up. Recognizing the mind that's clinging sets the stage for the recognition and the realization of the cause of suffering. And the very natural movement of the heart, the mind, to let go, to soften, to open and simply relinquish the contraction of clinging. Just about everyone has ideas, opinions, concepts of how it is, how it's supposed to be, what's true, what's good and will make you happy, what's bad and will make you miserable, angry or sad. If you hold tightly to these opinions, these concepts, they could prevent you from meeting the moment, prevent you from meeting the moment you're in, and you miss your appointment with life, as Thich Nhat Hanh says. What if events don't have to be anything other than what they are? Just let things be in their own way, and there will be neither coming nor going. Obey the nature of things, your own nature, and you will walk freely and undisturbed. For instance, the thought of and the experience of anicca, impermanence, It's often conceived of and related to with the mind of resistance, fear, rage, despondency. What about the truth that if there were no change, there would be no life? Imagine, if you can, what it would be like if nothing ever changed. an incredible nightmare, the worst nightmare, if nothing ever changed. 
no anicca, no life. Maybe we should consider celebrating anicca. There's an Australian poet, Michael Lunig, who um, he's also a cartoonist. With each of his poems, he draws a little cartoon illustration. So I'd like to share one of his poems and describe the cartoon that goes with this poem. The cartoon is a small line drawing of a man. His left arm is outstretched, and in his hand is a frying pan. In his left hand is a frying pan. In the frying pan is a big black blob of some black stuff, and there's smoke billowing out uh, off, off the black stuff. The man's head is turned, and he's looking to the left, at the frying pan, kind of with a wide-eyed amazement. And this is the poem. We give thanks for the invention of the handle. Without it, there would be many things we couldn't hold on to. As for the things we can't hold on to anyway, let us gracefully accept their ungraspable nature and celebrate all things elusive, fleeting, and intangible. They mystify us and make us receptive to truth and beauty. We celebrate and give thanks. Our idea that certain events are bad and are supposed to make us sad or angry just might not be true. In uh, 1985, my house burned down to the ground. No one was there when it happened. My three adult sons and I were uh, visiting my mother, who was living in Mexico at the time. The fire happened in Michigan. I received a phone call um, a couple of days after we'd arrived in Mexico from a friend who lived down the road from our house in the uh, forest in the woods in Michigan. And he called to tell me that my house had burned down to the ground. My, my first response was denial. I said, you're kidding. But of course, who would uh, call up a friend long distance and say that as a joke? So after we finished our very brief conversation, I hung up the phone, and I cried very hard for about 15 minutes. And my mother, who was standing right next to me, uh, just held me until the crying stopped. And then right after that, my brother, who was also visiting, he and I sat down and had a long conversation. By the end of our two-hour talk, the fire turned out to be a gift. Not a tragedy, but a gift. I didn't have any things to hold me, to bind me anymore. The spiritual path had burned its way open for me, so to say. 
in Asian countries, it's not unusual for people in their 40s or their 50s who, whose family responsibilities are essentially finished to go and live out the rest of their life as a spiritual life. And so to make a long story short, I ended up going to Asia for a year and a half and practiced quite ardently, quite diligently. And then I came back to this country and continued similarly. If it wasn't for that fire, there's a very good chance that I wouldn't be here with you uh, in this way this evening. At least, I think it's a good possibility. That huge change was a great gift that's still unwrapping itself. Shortly after the fire, someone gave me this haiku from Basho. Since my house burned down, I have a better view of the rising moon. I had a student who, when he began to connect more deeply with the truth of Anicca and the understanding that he didn't have any control over the unfolding of events, and as he expressed it, he not only saw that his day never went just as he planned it, but as he began to truly accept that that's just how it is, he also began to see and accept that his aging body was no different than the day. That it too was simply unfolding, undoing according to the conditions that he had absolutely no control over. In a practice interview one evening, he told me that he was beginning his sit each morning before going to work with forgiving his body and forgiving the day before it starts. Because in his words, it never goes as I plan, hope, expect, or dream it to be. His habit for many years, had been one of aversion, mostly anger at, taking a very offensive stance at things, people, events, not going his way. His early morning forgiveness practice wasn't out of the feeling that the day or his body had or was going to do something wrong and he needed to forgive them for it. Forgiveness was coming from the softening heart of acceptance for how it is. And in part, this softening heart was forgiving itself for the pain that it experienced for so many years in hardening against how things are. When he told me about this piece of his practice, I was struck by the unusual way that he was using forgiveness. And that, in fact, it was working for him. 
helping him to recognize and more deeply accept that there's no control, that things arise, change, and pass away without end. When the mind exists undisturbed in the way, nothing can offend. And when a thing can no longer offend, it ceases to exist in the old way. When no discriminating thoughts arise, the old mind ceases to exist. To sustain and deepen in to sustain and deepen in and with our practice, to see things as they are. Two of the most essential qualities of heart, of mind, that are required for us are honesty and humility. Self-deception and clear seeing are mutually incompatible in relationship to other people. It doesn't matter, for instance, if another person notices that I'm feeling or maybe even expressing anger. It doesn't matter if his image of me is shattered. What matters is that you are willing to come face to face with your anger and the awareness of the anger. And this is hard work. Tremendous energy and humility is needed to sustain the observation, to see yourself as you are. And because you see yourself as you are, you make no effort to project a different image to yourself or to anyone else. Vimala Thakar, who was one of Krishnamurti's closest students and who is a profound and powerful spiritual teacher in her own right, says, that is the only austerity that is required of an inquirer, the austerity of humility to see things as they are, to see my inner being as it is, good or bad, to observe it as it is without defending it, without justifying it, without interpreting or judging it, without taking pride in it, and without relegating the responsibility of those states to other people. Humility is the perennial source of energy or freshness. Humility enables you to learn, keeps you pliable, perhaps to the last breath, I hope. The great Thai forest meditation master Ajahn Chan used to tell his monks, it's a good thing I'm not perfect. If I was, you'd get dependent dependent on me for your awakening and not do the absolutely necessary work of looking into yourself.
there might be a very subtle aspect of complacency in our practice. Or the knowing of a degree and depth of peace and ease that was honestly and truly manifested and has been established through our practice that we are deeply grateful for and that we may have settled for. If we're lucky, if we take our life as our practice, at various points along the way, we'll step into or welcome in pieces of life, aspects of our human experience that ask us to go maybe surprisingly deeper than we might deliberately pick or choose. To go deeper into relinquishing aspects of the map, our map of the world that still varies from the actual territory of how it is. During the last nine months of my life, I've discovered something about preferences, picking and choosing, the with mind, the mind that's made up, and the strain and the struggle, the pain therein. And I've discovered something about the without mind, the heart the mind that's not made up, that doesn't want anything to be different, that isn't picking and choosing. They're not really new discoveries, but this recent understanding has shown up from an unexpected and even unsuspected depth. Last January, I spent five days with my mother who celebrates her 92nd birthday tomorrow. She was living in a very difficult situation, about an hour and a half away from my home in Taos, New Mexico. At the end of my visit, as I was just about ready to walk out the door, I turned around and looked long at her, fully letting in the whole situation, letting it into my heart, and said to myself, I can't leave her here. I'm taking her home with me. Within one hour, I had her and most of her essential belongings packed up and in my car, and we were off. In retrospect, the moment of knowing what must be done and the subsequent hour of activity in response to this knowing was probably as pure a moment as I've had. Simply responding with the clarity, spontaneity, and equipoise of the still and empty mind, out of which springs unconditional compassion. The without mind. The heart without preference. No thought of picking and choosing. The heart, the mind, wide open, spacious, no thoughts of the past, no anticipating the future, a mind not made up about things. 
And then we were home to Taos. And an unexpected, unsuspected depth of practice ensued. Very quickly it dawned that I had made a commitment to take my mother into my life until death do us part, as I said to a friend. She couldn't go back to where she had been. I couldn't shift her off to a nursing home. Life took a radically new turn. Living very closely with another person, and this being happening to be my mother. After living alone for many years in a life filled with practicing and teaching the Dhamma in many different parts of the world, and now all of a sudden living very closely with someone who needs a great deal of ongoing caretaking in relationship to all of the basics of life that we usually take for granted for ourselves. Preparing and eating appropriate food, taking medication, washing our bodies and our clothes, dressing, toileting, communicating, knowing what time of day it is and what that might mean in relation to sleep and being awake. Though my heart is fully committed to seeing us through this last bit of my mother's life, whatever that will be, the with mind, the mind of picking and choosing, the conditional mind has stepped in a few times seemingly out of the depth with a strength and a burn that has taken me by surprise. What an incredible opportunity to see the contraction, the depth of intensity of the discomfort of tightening up around my preferences, what I want to do, and when I want to do it. What an incredible opportunity to bring the qualities of honesty and humility, to see the depth and the intensity of the discomfort of the resistance to how things are, the painful contraction of wanting life to be different than it is. Even though the heart and mind are fully committed to being with how it is. And what an incredible opportunity to see the ease, the peace of mind, of heart, when there's no preference, no picking and choosing, no pull, no yearning, no hoping for, no anger, no fear, no resistance. Just knowing the peace, the ease of being, nothing to become or get, the without mind, nothing needing to be different than it is, and simply going about the day, our day or night, from this relationship to things. And again from Ajahn Chah, 
Be mindful and let things take their natural course. Then your mind will become still in any surroundings, like a clear forest pool. All kinds of wonderful, rare animals will come drink at the pool, and you will clearly see the nature of all things. You will see many strange and wonderful things come and go, but you will be still. This is the happiness of the Buddha. Can we relinquish our preference of picking and choosing? Can we be with phenomena, whatever it is, just as it is? The truth is lying in wait to be seen and known right in this moment. Can we begin to see and realize the true nature of things in every kind of birth? not needing to add anything, not needing to take anything away. Can we wander into the natural state of the equipoise of an undisturbed mind, the world outside going on just as it is, thoughts and feelings arising and changing, coming and going, no different than anything else in the world, nothing to argue with, nothing to cling to. The great way is not difficult if you just don't pick and choose. When love and hate are both absent, everything becomes clear and undisguised. Make the smallest distinction, however, and heaven and earth are set infinitely apart. If you wish to see the truth, then hold no opinions for or against anything. The way is perfect like vast space, where nothing is lacking and nothing is in excess. Indeed, it is due to our acceptance, our choosing to accept or reject, that we do not see the true nature of things. The wise strive to no goals. The foolish fetter themselves. There is only one dharma, not many. Distinctions arise from ignorant clinging. If the mind makes no distinctions, the 10,000 things are as they are, of one essence. Fathoming the mystery of one essence is to be released from all entanglements. The great way is not difficult if you just don't pick and choose. And let's just sit for a moment. May the merit of our practice be joined with all the wholesome actions of the three times, past, present, and future. And together, may it be all dedicated to the welfare, the happiness, and the liberation of all beings.
Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.